The United Nations IPCC report recently released told us that we have 12 years to phase out coal, oil and gas. And as is traditional with BZE, we just roll up our sleeves and look at the alternatives. How can we do it? So my name is Vivian Langford and I'm reporting for the Beyond Zero Emissions community show. I'll take you to the Wind Farm Open Day at Mount Jellybrand, which is not far from Colac. It attracted over 400 people and I had a chance to interview a few people under the wind turbines so you'll hear how little noise they make and some of the people who were doing the tour from the company called Axiona. Later I interview Paul Marnie about eating differently. His theme is the climate impact of cows and sheep. With fewer of them, he says, we will feed many more people. We'll use less water in this drought-stricken land and we'll sequester carbon at a greater rate. So winter power and plant power on the menu tonight. I'm at the Mount Jellybrand Wind Farm just out of Colac and I've got someone here from the Australian Wind Alliance called Doug and I'd just like him to tell, it's at the very beginning of the day, he's the first person I'm interviewing, just tell us what the uh, reason for this open day is and how amazing it is that so many people, it's been oversubscribed apparently. Yeah, absolutely, it's been so, the bus tours have been sold out, I heard, 400 people or so and I think they're expecting a lot more people just to, to rock up. Uh, look, I think the main purpose of the day is to just let people get up close and personal with a wind turbine and see, in a sense, see what the fuss is about. Because, you know, sometimes there is a bit of a fuss. There's a lot of information out there that's not not accurate. There are a lot of concerns, but I guess when you when you physically interact with it, you, you can hear it, you can see it, then you actually get a real, your own experience, and you can balance that against the other information you get. There's also a huge passion for renewable energy in the community, and uh, I think people really want to be able to see the technology implemented and at the same time address any, you know, sort of community interaction concerns that, that are going on. They don't, you know, local communities want the power, they want the benefit for the for the host farms and for the for the community, but they don't want to divide communities. So it's it's a perfect opportunity to you know to talk to landholders to to, to take a bus tour out to the to the turbine and, and see what it's all really about. Well, I'm going to record a few interviews, I hope, out under a wind turbine just so we can see if the background noise is really <laughs> disturbing. And I've been once before to, and it didn't seem to inter- on the audio you could hardly hear it No, uh, and I think the um, the buffer zones now, you know, at one kilometre you know, that's that's actually a long distance to hear anything, I mean I live one kilometre from a train line and we can hear the train, there's no way the wind turbine's as loud as a train <laughs> I can tell you that, not a diesel freight loco, anyway, but um, yeah I've, I find them quite a, a relaxing thing in the landscape and, and, and very quiet and, and if it's loud enough for it to be loud then it's the wind's roaring and you're not going to hear anything anyway <laughs> Other than the wind. I'm standing out under a wind turbine. It's 90 metres tall and 67 metres wide. The tower's made of steel and the blades are made with fibreglass. Apparently when they decommission a wind farm, they can recycle all that steel, although the fibreglass is more difficult. I just wanted to speak to somebody here who's on the bus tour and uh, just so that you can hear how much noise one can hear in the background. 
Apart from the wind turbine, we're surrounded by paddocks with a lot of sheep and cattle grazing underneath them. And the farmers, the nine landholders who have this big property, are sharing it with the Axiona Wind Farm and they have access roads built for them and it's been advantageous to them so far. So now let's listen to a man, I found a local man, uh, who was on the tour. What's out here. People have been negative, some have been positive. But I just wanted to see what we have in our own area and this is delightful. It doesn't seem to be any impact on anything. It's just so user-friendly and it's great. Are you a local to this area? Oh, well, local. I, been, I come from Colac. Colac. So, okay. But it affects Colac, so yeah. where we go. Yes, a lot of the questions on the bus were about the sound and the impact on the land, but it doesn't seem to be much impact. A lot of it was when you were the early ones which got put in central Victoria, around Warborough. We've gone and stood under them at, uh, at uh, Cape Nelson. They are noisy because of the speed of the wind. We don't know what the effect would be. They tell us there's no noise here on a windy day it's dead quiet so obviously technology has made difference in veins and fans all the way through no I'm delighted the way it is do you have a background in this or are you just interested or my point of view is the climate change necessity to transition well we've just got to be aware that climate change is going to occur because this population alone will, will create climate change so let's not blame everything just blame too many humans on the vet, on the planet cyclones Cast is pretty grim shocking do you ever feel like just switching off? Well, don't. Switch on to Beyond Zero Emissions Community Radio Show every Monday at 5pm on 3CR and beat the doom and gloom to find out the latest actions and research in your community. VZE Radio at 5pm on Monday. Turn the tide, literally. I'm still at Mount Jellybrand Wind Farm, which we've just been on a tour and seen a huge, massive, I've never seen such big wind turbines, slowly turning in the breeze. And I've got Julian here from Axiona Company, and uh, he's agreed to just describe the... Um, the meaning of this for the public, you know, to have so many people here, they're queuing up for another bus tour now just to see these wind turbines and just how exciting it is to be part of this big project. Yeah, thank you. Um, we're having a great day today. We've got over 400 people coming from the local community to visit the wind farm. We've got coaches uh, taking people around the wind farm and they're stopping at turbines and so people can actually see what's going on and they can see the turbines. Some of them are spinning today and some of them aren't because we don't have as much strong wind as we'd like. Uh, but it's lots of fun and we've got lots of staff on hand to answer questions and we've got things to entertain the kids so we're having a great day yeah well in the past there's been problems about wind farms and on the bus people ask questions about the noise and that and in there was a kind of a go slow on renewable energy projects but this seems to be going gangbusters now there seem to be wind farms and solar farms popping up everywhere do you feel that 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 it's ongoing now that this is 
a good profitable investment or not on the, we're not giving investment advice on the radio but you know do you think it's it's all going forward now it won't stagnate again yeah compared to say uh, three or four years ago there's a lot more optimism now in the renewable sector I think people are really starting to realize that the transition away from fossil fuels to uh, renewables whether it be wind or solar or something else it makes a lot of sense uh, in Australia we're seeing a lot more investment a lot more companies are interested and uh, people are really getting behind companies like us and getting these uh, wind farms or solar farms up and running. Yeah, I think you said to us you had uh, someone from the state government out here and that, that they are your half they are your customer for half of your energy when this thing is totally commissioned that's correct so uh, minister lily d'ambrosio who's the energy minister of victoria so she's been a strong supporter um the victorian government as you know is committed to uh, moving towards renewables mm -hmm. and companies like us uh uh yeah, we're the people who help them get there yeah. with that by investing and by building these wind farms. Yeah. And what about the manufacturing side? What component of that is Australian made? Uh, a lot of the components come from Australia. Not all of them, because things like blades, which are fiberglass, are not manufactured in Australia at all. But half the towers at this wind farm were built by Keppel Prince, which is a fantastic company out in Portland. Uh, they're big steel works. They do a lot of really good projects, and uh, they're one of the companies that's benefiting. So they're actually taking on more people because they're making the towers not just for us but for other wind farms as well yeah. so they're doing a great job out there in Portland. Yeah well we're standing in a place that just looks like a countryside it's cleared land it's I think nine landholders have joined together to be um, hosts to this wind farm but uh, I noticed by your accent you're from England and uh, yeah, I think in Europe there's not so much spare land as this and what, could you just tell us the kind of big picture for offshore wind because I think listeners will be interested they won't have seen an offshore wind farm can you tell us about how they work? Yeah offshore wind makes a lot of sense where you've got densely packed densely populated places with not much land mass like in Europe uh, in Australia obviously we're a vast country with lots of space in Europe uh, they're particularly looking at in places like Scandinavia and in England as well, uh, off the coast of southern England, you're getting offshore wind farms. So compared to the wind farms you might see in Australia, these ones that they have offshore in Europe would be you know, quite a few hundred metres out to sea. Yeah. They'd be very, very large. Uh, there'd be a much greater engineering challenge getting them you know, yeah. anchored under the, you know, to the seabed. Uh, but it is a trend that you're seeing, and they can be very efficient as well because they're so big and they capture those really strong uh, coastal winds. What kind of policy environment do you need for this? There's millions of conferences. I know you go to them. I've been to them too, and they debate and debate all the policy things. But we seem to be having two steps forward and two steps back at the federal level. I think at the state level, they're becoming a bit more savvy about how to just promote this transition. What do you have some policy blueprints that you would like to see your company? I think for companies like us, what we most want to see is stability and clear policy choices. Okay, so different governments have their views of renewables and the energy sector and general and, and that's what we've seen and mm. and it has been controversial but companies like us you know we're looking at multi-decade investments of hundreds of millions of dollars so what we just want is a clear idea of where we're going as a country and we can work within that you know yeah. that's what that's all we need and that's what we're asking for okay well you're supplying wind energy there's also solar energy at the last conference I went to, they kept talking about firming power and a lot of that was going to be supplied by gas or pumped hydro. Now, when you think of the big picture, um, do you think about that like 
whole grid supply, like supplying 100% renewable energy to a grid, what firming capacity would you need? Do you, do you know about that? Uh, only, <laughs> I'm not an expert in this field, but... I mean, I think what we're seeing now is really part of a much larger transition where there are concerns now about the grid and stability and what kind of um, uh, production goes into what and how you firm and, uh, and securing supply. Mm. I think what we'll see in the future as batteries uh, come online and you've got increasing, you'll have increasingly sophisticated software as well to manage energy production, what is sold when, what is kept, what is stored. So I think... You know, maybe 10 years from now, these questions will be largely irrelevant because, yeah, these technical issues will be settled and the technology will be available and delivering. Mm-hmm. Right now, it's more like a transition period, and that's why there's so much comment and uncertainty. So, what's the future for wind farms? Well, I think we'll still continue to see them uh, built and invested in in Australia. And one of the big things will be the entrance of batteries into large scale wind farms. So, there's a lot of talk and excitement around this at the moment. So, from our point of view you know our future wind farms will have the capacity um, to have batteries and that will help with grid stability and also storage and from companies point of view pricing about when you buy and when you sell and when you store Uh, so it's a really exciting time it's early days yet and everyone's still working out how these things and the batteries are going to work best from an economic point of view but that's going to be one of the big developments that people will see over the coming years Will pumped hydro batteries be part of it, or do you mean batteries like the one in Tesla one in South Australia? Yeah, more like the Tesla one in uh, South Australia, maybe a bit smaller, but um, yeah, attached to a wind farm. And then uh, the companies will be able to, at least in the start, experiment with using the battery. And then once they yeah, are happy with the way that goes, then maybe we'll see bigger batteries and a lot more storage capacity on the site of a big wind farm or a big solar farm take heart listeners we've been reassured i wish the politicians wouldn't have so many fingers in this pie because really i think the technical people can work it out is that your feeling i think so yes thank you so we've been speaking to julian from axiona company out of the mount chili brand wind farm Beyond Zero Emissions is an internationally recognised climate solutions think tank that is focused on solutions, not problems. Become part of the solution by becoming a monthly baseload supporter. Go to www.bze.org.au to find out more. bze.org.au Paul Mahoney is a writer and campaigner. He's very informed about the connection between livestock and climate change, and like all of us, he cares deeply about it. His website is called Terra Stendo, and I'll ask him to give us all the details at the end. But welcome, Paul, and tell us a bit more about yourself. I've been writing about climate change in general and also the impacts on climate change of animal agriculture for about 10 years. It keeps me pretty busy. I, I work full-time and that's just sort of my, uh, what I call my unpaid second job. Uh, well, you, you write very good blogs and it's very detailed, listeners. If you want to look Thank up Terrastenda, you'll find all the graph FAO details and things from all around the world that Paul gathers there. I think you're part of a tribe of people now who, who do this as their second job. There's lots of yeah, doctors and yeah. people just oh, you yeah. know doing alternative streams of information because the media certainly doesn't cover it. No, it doesn't cover it much. Not, not to the extent it may to anyway. No. Well, look, um, Beyond Zero Emissions author uh, Gerard Wedderburn Bishop, he gave a talk to the doctors at Newcastle recently and it was at a conference about doctors for the environment. Mm-hmm. And I'll put a video link to this to this podcast. 
And Gerard shows just how much land is being cleared and burned for grazing in New South Wales and especially in Queensland. He said 75% of our land is for grazing and half of the cropland is for animal feed. And I thought, well, look, it's starting to be like beef is becoming the new coal and gas. And I mm. wonder why it's so controversial. Well, yeah, this highlights one of the key problems of animal agriculture in that it's inherently inefficient. Animals are inher inherently inefficient food source. One of the results of that is that we require far more resources, including land, than would otherwise be the case. And, and those figures for Queensland, it's quite frightening. The, the amount cleared since 1988, which is the period that the government in Queensland has been publishing figures, uh, the clearing equates to over 11 million rugby fields. Over 90% of the clearing has been for livestock production in that state. And World Wildlife Fund, the Worldwide Fund for Nature, has, has listed Eastern Australia as one of 11 global deforestation uh, fronts in the period up to 2030 because of uh, legislation in Queensland and New South Wales relating to land clearing. So it is a massive issue uh, in Australia. The reliance on meat domestically and also for export is causing massive amounts of, of our land to be cleared. And yes. that clearly has major impacts in terms of, of climate change, in terms of releasing carbon dioxide to the atmosphere and also losing the ongoing sequestration of carbon from the atmosphere. Yes. Well, the doctors were very worried about ecosystem breakdown and things like when you mm. land clear all that east coast mm. of Australia, if you look at the map of Australia, there's only this little fringe of green where Absolutely. vegetation is. that's right. And all of those are corridors, for example, for pollinating bees yep. and bats. Mm. And mm. as we clear that, mm. uh, there's no corridor for them and they arrive um, starving in the south. Well, that's right. So it has, it has massive uh, impacts on the environment generally, uh, you know, ecosystem services and habitat for wildlife and, and climate change. It also has impacts for the Great Barrier Reef. Uh, that's not just the land clearing. Um, the, the clearing and grazing of cattle has a big impact on the reef, but grazing of cattle on uncleared lands is, is also very, very significant in terms of reef impact. A major factor in crown of thorn starfish outbreak is livestock grazing, but I go into that in a fair bit of detail on my website, so okay. if anybody's interested in that... Yeah, they, they can, can look that up, and I notice you've got a very cute little sort of thing uh, showing people saying ban coal, and you've got this little <laughs> pop-up thing that says, and beef! <laughs> yeah, that's right. I'll, yeah, I'll see if I can link that to the um, you know to our podcast Listen, no let's go on we're talking to Paul Marnie who's a writer and campaigner Paul there was another Paul at the Sustainable Living Festival his name was Paul Hawken and I did interview him about his book Project Drawdown mm. and he advocated all sorts of things like rotational grazing seaweed mm. supplements to cut down the methane emitted by cows and sylviculture where the animals graze in forested paddocks and eat mm. legumes well look mm. I've interviewed farmers on all of those fields and they've, all of those techniques are being used in Australia, but the land sector is still responsible for massive emissions. What's your um, response to that? Paul Hawken, in, in the book Drawdown, which he edited, had as number four on the list of the areas where we can have a major or provide major benefits in terms of climate change. The number four on his list was plant-rich diet. So his figures, his analysis was quite conservative uh, for, for lots of reasons. 
Yes, I, I also thought that, you know, the almost techniques are used on the coastal sort of praising areas, you know, really nice lush valleys where beautiful, you know, plenty of rain, but mm. not up on the northern rangelands where we've got cattle, according to what uh, Gerard's showed me, you know, like people, cattle just grazing yeah. on dust. Yeah, Ger dust, Gerard has, uh, Gerard, uh, whatever Bishop has said, that the, the type of method that Alan Savory proposes uh, could have benefits in temperate areas mm. where there's plenty of water and labour costs uh, are low because they, it does require a lot of work in terms of herding the cattle and all that type of thing. And I, th I think a, a very big issue is that the uh, livestock sector would never be able to feed the masses in a sustainable way. Uh, we've got a growing population, and I'm not saying whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, but the fact is the world's population is growing. Uh, there'll be more people who need to be fed, and we need to find the food at the moment because of the, of the inherent inefficiency and the gross inefficiency of animals mm. as a food source. We, we are not going to be able to feed the people uh, using cattle and, and uh, with, with the type of method that, that uh, the rotational grazing people talk about, uh, you know, the, the numbers uh, would most likely be lower, need to be lower, and we won't be able to provide the nutrition because the end product is nutrition, whether that comes from uh, plant foods or or animal-based foods. Yeah. Well, I interviewed someone in Malaysia, and she was an expert on this, and she'd written a book called What's at Stake, S-T-E-A-K, and she was ah. very much about the decreasing the need for meat. And she said it's, the problem is because in Asia now, the, anyone who becomes middle class, it's a status symbol to have meat. And, and so this is creating a problem that, that where countries were previously mm, mostly mm. vegetarian and, and mm. meat was a luxury, you know, right. occasionally wool yeah. or, and even eggs and that. But uh, mm. they are now seeing meat as the great status symbol. But I think there's something else afoot because in New Zealand um, they had a marvellous document documentary on the radio call uh, Radio New Zealand about how they're talking about a radical cutback on their dairy herd mm. partly because of water pollution you know this nitrate pollution in all their waterways and partly mm. because non-dairy milk and meatless meat or meat substitutes are threatening their market and mm. so they're preparing for a transition and there was no mention of climate change but it would in fact affect climate change if they mm. change to that. And I wonder if that could work here. We haven't got the same geography as New Zealand, but would that mm. work here? Uh, well, we've, we've got... Um, th there is a strong move towards uh, vegan diets uh, in developed countries. And as you mentioned, it's, it's, not, it's going the other way in, in developing countries. But, yeah, certainly by moving away from, from animals and providing alternative sources of nutrition, uh, we can reduce the, the uh, climate change and other environmental impacts. And, and it's water use as well because dairy and, and uh, other animal-based industries use a, a lot of water and that's a, it can be a fairly contentious issue. We can retain a natural ecosystem which has huge benefits for the environment and climate change or we can produce steak from land because a lot of people argue well you can't you can't derive 
uh, food from a lot of these lands that animals graze on without grazing. You know, you won't be able to grow crops there and that type of thing. Uh, but these are vibrant ecosystems. You know, the nor northern Australia uh, has huge areas of perennial grasses and they can be overgrazed and drought comes and the, the land is flogged and Jared talks a lot about this, you know, the, the fence line effect and that type of thing. Well, when you think of all that land in the fertile areas of Australia that has been cleared, uh, we, we have choices there. We could either allow that to revegetate and become forest again or we could use it to grow crops and we would use we would need far less land than you need for the cattle in order to grow those crops so uh, for any given nutritional output you 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 need far less land if you're avoiding animal products than if you do use animals so i think there'd be a lot of scope in australia to use very fertile land uh, that has been cleared and, and land that it hasn't been cleared as well. Uh, there's existing cropland which we're, we're growing, we're using to grow crops to feed animals. Yes, Again, that's right. inherently inefficient. Yep. <laughs> animals need to grow them. Yeah, they need to grow. They need to maintain their their life. Uh, so they're using the nutrition from that food, and there's only a small amount left of it yep. uh, at the end of the day in the steak or the, the whatever it is we want to derive from that yep. animal. So uh, there's an awful lot of scope to use, and this is the point of the University of Minnesota research, is they were actually basing their analysis on croplands uh, by converting uh, or moving away from uh, land that's currently used for livestock production. Uh, they, they, in fact, the figure when you allow for biofuels, I mentioned a figure of 4 billion, the, the figure is actually 3.6 billion uh, more people. We would have the capacity to feed 3.6 billion more people. Now, there are currently around 800 million people uh, undernourished according to the World Health Organization in the world so we could solve uh, we could solve the the crisis of nutrition uh, easily if we decided to use the nutrition wisely and to distribute it ethically and fairly oh, but we choose to, <laughs> to use the the, the riches of the world, of the planet, uh, to to feed animals who are then yeah they're un they're born to be killed. Just um, finish. I wanted to come to you now. I'm sure you have had this reaction as I have had. That people say to you, "Oh, stop lecturing me," as if people who mm -hmm. take these strong campaigning positions mm -hmm. are kind mm -hmm. of too intense and mm -hmm. and so on. But mm -hmm. I've noticed in the Age the other day four pages devoted to the plant-based revolution, oh, and right. there was hardly a mention of climate change. Mm -hmm. Needless to say, animal cruelty wasn't there. But mm. they said that it was the biggest food shift in a decade mm. and it was all about trendy restaurants where you can have all mm. these exciting recipes and everything. It yep. didn't really attract me, but I read it because I was going to speak to mm. you. And I wonder, do you think that, that the biggest thing we can do is to demand veggie burgers and alternative cheeses to the supermarkets and the shops? And well, they are, they are then responding. we can stop flying and using fossil fuels and all those other climate things, but we don't need to mention climate at all. I mean, people are giving me this mention, stop mentioning climate change. Do you think hmm. that this is going to be a fashion trend, it'll be a, a lifestyle trend that people will just get it? Look, there's lots of reasons. I think people are waking up to the cruelty, they're waking up to the health benefits, and they're waking up to the environmental benefits. There's lots of areas where... A move away from animal foods is benefit, and and other aspects of animal production, animal you know they're, they're being exploited uh, to produce 
uh, goods for for us and people are waking up so there's lots of different triggers you know for an individual to make that change and what they're finding I think is because industry is responding and providing so many in terms of food so many delicious choices there's lots of competition now uh, that people can see they can do it almost seamlessly that they, they can move away from the steak and the sausage you know, the meat sausage and all this type of thing uh, and the cheese there are fantastic uh, vegan cheeses available on the market and uh, including mozzarella that melts on pizzas and all sorts of things so that they're seeing that they can do this without missing they're not comp- really having to compromise in the way you might have had to do 10 20 years ago you know we are seeing Woolworths and Coles stocking far more vegan products than they ever have in the past yeah. uh, so things um are feeding off themselves, if you like. You know, they, 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 there's responses both ways, and it is a very, very big trend. There's no doubt about that. Listen, Paul, I've never asked anyone on radio before, but what's your favourite recipe? Thing as you specialise in all of this. <laughs> That's a really good question. Look, I've got a nice simple one that I, I make at home and uh, it, it probably wouldn't excite a lot of people, but it's actually sausage rolls made with tempeh. Tempeh is, I don't know if you know tempeh, no. it's, it's a soy-based food. It's uh, quite solid and you can grate it like cheese. Uh, I grate that and uh, cook up some sweet potato and, and grate some zucchini and carrot and, and put in some herbs and you cook it with some tamari, which is like soy sauce, and garlic powder and things like this. Sorry, I don't use garlic in that one, but yeah. soy sauce. And, uh, mix it all together, and it's easy to find. I think it's puff pastry I use. I'm not an expert on pastry, but you can buy easily buy vegan puff pastry. You don't even have to go looking in a vegan section. A lot of the puff pastry yeah. is vegan anyway. So, yeah, look, that, they, that's, I, I really enjoy it. Uh, and I use um, a bit of chilli in there as well, give it a bit of spice. And you can have that with a bit, with a bit of relish or something like that. Okay. And you can freeze them and yeah. uh, bring them out. It's a really good quick uh, dinner. Okay, uh, good. Well, look, want, I hope so. we've turned a few people over to <laughs> not eating as much as meat as they used to mm. and then eventually not eating meat at all. Look up that New Zealand podcast. I'll put it on a link to that and to Paul's website. So we've been talking to Paul Marnie, writer and campaigner, and his main website is uh, Terrastindo and Planetary Vegan. Thank you, Paul. Thank you very much. Beta lo primo bacio che mai dato, beta lo primo bacio che mai dato, no del remoto, no del remoto. I'm Mauro Durante from Canzoniere Grecanico Salentino. This is 3CR855 on your IM dial. Please subscribe. The community is important, the spirit of community is the most important thing, so subscribe. Hello, you're with Earth Matters, giving voice to people on environment and social justice issues. Today's story, Keep Your Honor Pristine, No Dam, was produced on the lands of the Biri and Wiri near Collinsville and on Yindinji land in Gimoy, Cairns. Thanks to 3CR in Nam, Melbourne, the lands of the Wurundjeri, for facilitating the program and the community radio network who distribute the show to radio stations around Australia. I'm Beck Horridge. We are the kangaroo, we are the eagle, we are part of all of that. We know that through our songs, our stories and our language. We don't have to find that. We know that by being on country, that's part of who you are as an Aboriginal. 
Ken Peters Dodd, a sovereign Bui man whose ancestors were removed from their land. Now he has returned with his family to live on his very country inland from Bowen and the Abbott Coalport. Ken returned to find mining ventures all around and coal rail track bearing smelly, noisy coal carts rumbling through the land. Of great concern was that Adani was promising to build yet another coal line through Berry Country. Ken and his family resisted, working with reef defenders and the frontline action on coal. Was it partly the threat of this staunch opponent that encouraged Adani to change his plan and head the new coal rail track in another direction? Nandaji Nayanari. My name is Ken Peters Dodd. We are Biria people and Woody people of the Bayon Basin of the Freshwater from the Clark Ranges west. And Dodd is my grandfather's name, Reginald Dodd, who was a Biria man born on the uh, Bogey and uh, Bowen River mouth at the Kirkmere Creek there on Biri country. Our country has only been first contact with Europeans is about 120 years. Europeans came through our lands in the late 1870s. Our lands were taken by colonisation by force. A lot of our people were massacred through our lands. In 1914, it was the last removals of our people from the Bowen River area. They were rounded up and taken to a keeping place, a holding place by the government known as Strathmore Station. From there, they were removed all the way to Hope Vale, up to Mission Beach, and then down back down to Palm Island, where they settled till 1950. Then they were further removed to Warrabinda. I'm talking to Ken Peters Dodd. We're here on Bury Country, at the back of Bowen. Ken, you're living now on Bury Country. Can you tell me something about your return home? Hmm. Well, you know... We were on our grandfather's country, you know, in, in our traditional boundaries. We live on our homelands, which is to us is very significant, you know, for our journey and where we've travelled from, you know, young people and then just the wanting and the knowing and that, that you know, searching for your, your place, your belonging, you know, as an Aboriginal person and... Through my whole journey, it was it was about that, and you know, my family, my wife, it was about us, you know, finding that 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 oneness, that holistic connection with your not only just you know your identity, your, you know, your your land and the, the spirituality, you know, it's the mental, the physical, the spiritual being of being on country, which gives you that that understanding, that nudge of you know how everything works, how everything fits together. The balance between nature, rain, wet season, fire, rivers, ocean, birds, everyone plays a strong part and have within our, you know, lands for thousands of years. And, you know, when we look now, we, we connect with that. We connect with the trees, even though they're, you know, these trees are only regrowth from previous, you know, land clearing and devastation a hundred years ago. But, you know, we still see that life within our land and our animals, our yurutis, you know, and that's who we are. We are the kangaroo, we are the eagle, we are part of all of that. We know that through our songs, our stories and our language. We don't have to find that. We know that by being on country, that's part of who you are as an Aboriginal. You know, your, your identity, your Aboriginality to your land as a barrier person, as a sovereign person that stands as a sovereign 